All right. So we are in our study um, this morning. We are now in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I want you to pay attention to the, the words of the Scripture as we read them. Um, we're going to read the whole section first, and then we're going to look at it in um, three parts this morning. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. Now it happened, as he, that is Jesus, went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into, the, into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, there are three stories in this section. And we're going to look at them as three scenes of a play, if you will. And the first scene, um, they're, they're related to each other, and we're going to see how in just a moment. The first scene begins with an invitation. And the Lord Jesus is invited to um, a ruler of the Pharisees' home for a meal. It's the Sabbath day, and he has come to this home for a meal. And he's one of the invited guests. Now, before we get too far into the story... I want you to imagine something, um, what it would be like to invite the Lord Jesus into your home, into your apartment. What would it be like? You say, oh, that would be wonderful to have the Lord Jesus in my home. And we'd be able to sit on the couch and we'd be able to talk about things and it would be a great time. Oh, I'd love to have that. Be careful. It might be a little more difficult than you expect. Imagine, many years ago, Bill McDonald invited, I mean, I'm sorry, he wrote a book, a booklet called The Day Jesus Came to My House. And that's what we're going to title the sermon this morning. The Day Jesus Came to My House. 
And uh, the book was, of course, an imaginary story of inviting the Lord Jesus Christ into his home and allowing the Lord free reign in any room of his house, any place in his house, any cupboard, any door, any closet. Now, can you imagine inviting anyone here to have that freedom in your home, let alone the Lord Jesus? So the imaginary story was that. The book actually came uh, out of an event that took place in Bill's life. I don't know how many of you know George Verwer. Can I maybe just a hand? Okay, so some of you know George Verwer. George Verwer was the head of an organization, a missions organization called Operation Mobilization. And Operation Mobilization was a, what I would call a hard-hitting, sacrificial living kind of an organization that was basically forsake all give it to the work of the Lord, and go out and burn out for Christ on the mission field. Short-term missions and some long-term missions. And their, their goal was to take everything valuable you could, turn it into cash, purchase as much literature as you could possibly purchase with it, and distribute it as widely as you could with it so that the, the masses could hear the gospel. And that was the vision, really, of George Verwer uh, of Operation Mobilization. Many years ago, uh, Bill McDonald was a teacher at Emmaus Bible College or school in uh, Illinois, and George came into his office one day, and Bill was sitting behind his desk, and Bill's office, you have to imagine this, was lined with shelves, bookshelves, and on every shelf there were books, and there were volumes, you know, that made him look very studious, and of course he was, uh, but made him look very smart, as he would say. And George came in one day, and uh, he said, Mr. McDonald, you know, I was just wondering, and he stopped. He, he sucked the words back in, and he, he didn't finish his sentence, and he just hung his head. And Bill said to him, George, if you have something to say from the Lord, say it. And so George kind of sheepishly finished his sentence. He said, you know, Mr. McDonald, I was just wondering have you read all these books? And Bill had to admit he had not. But like I say, you know, he knew it made him look studious. George went on. He says, you know, Mr. McDonald, I was wondering if, if you could take these books that you haven't read and could sell them and take the money that you made from those books and turn it into gospel literature. I, I'm just thinking how many people could hear the gospel with that. And I, I, I just was wondering... Well, that was a little, as my mother would say, a little cheeky on the part of um, George to say such a thing to a scholar like Bill. But Bill took it to heart, and he went home that night, and he began to think about what George had said. And uh, he said that he felt like he was under a magnifying glass when George asked that question, and yet he knew that George was right. And he went home, and he knew what he had to do. He began to think of what it would be like if it wasn't George who came into his office or came into his home, but if it was the Lord Jesus, how much more would he feel like he was under the magnifying glass or maybe under the fire? (laughs) What might it be like to have the Lord who left the splendor of glory to come into this world of woe, come and visit Him in His home? If He felt this uncomfortable with a close personal friend of his asking such a question, 
How uncomfortable would he feel if the Lord came into his home and asked him questions about possessions that he had, things that he did, and uh, ways he spent his time. And from these thoughts came the booklet, The Day Jesus Came to My House. Well, the section of Scripture that we have before us here is no imaginary story. Jesus really did come to this man's house. And as we will see, it was a rather uncomfortable event. It was not a happy day sitting on the couch talking about things of the Lord. He was very uncomfortable. A Pharisee was hosting a meal. He invited Jesus to come on a Sabbath day uh, for the meal. Can I ask you a question? Would you feel comfortable if Jesus came to your house today? We have an imaginary house here. Pretend it's yours. Would, you, would it be an uncomfortable event? What if he came for more than one day? Would you need to make changes in your lifestyle? Would you need to cha- make changes uh, in your family if he came to live with you for an extended stay? Would you feel embarrassed if he went into every room of your house and asked you about your possessions? Would you feel comfortable giving the Lord the password to your computer and let Him see everything that's on there? Do a complete history of everything that you've done, every site you've been to. Would you feel comfortable with everything you have on there? Of course, you do realize the Lord knows your password. You do realize that He knows where you've been. You do realize you know He knows what you've seen. You realize that He watches everything we do. Would you invite Him to play your computer games? Your games online? How would, he, how would you feel about that? Or would you change what you do? Would you, would you have Him sit down with you and watch your DVDs? Or listen to what entertains you? Your music or whatever else it might be. If he were given the liberty to go through everything that you have in your home and he started sorting through your videos and games and entertainment and interests, would you feel ashamed or would you know that it delights his heart? Suppose he came into your living room or wherever you have the TV and he sat down and said, Lord, I'm going to watch my favorite TV program tonight. It's on at 8 o'clock and I want you to sit and watch with me. Would you have to explain to him Why the actors are always taking his name in vain? Ouch. Would you need to shut off the TV during certain segments of the show? Maybe we should just reach for the remote and go to another room. What do you think? Maybe you have a room that you use as an office or some place where you balance your checkbook or whatever you do online or an actual physical checkbook. How would you feel if he stumbled across your bank records sitting on the desk and he began to look through how you've spent your money? If he were to go through them, wouldn't it tell him what you really consider to be of value? How you spend your money tells you, tells him what you consider to be of value. Would the records show that we care more for people or more for things? 
How does a record show in your checkbook, in your balance, in your bank statements? Would the record demonstrate that we like to help people or that we like to help ourselves? Do we enjoy helping those who are poor, the widows, the needy? Would he see that you're laying up treasures in heaven or that you're laying up treasures on earth? The record shows. And remember, he's already seen the checkbook. He's already seen what you write out. He knows how we spend our money. Would we reach for the checkbooks and stuff them into a drawer so that he can't look anymore? He knows everything, brothers and sisters. He's already got it down. What if he went into our chat room? Oh, I, I know that's not a literal room in our house. But there's somewhere where we are in our house when we go on to our chat room or Facebook or whatever other social network we, we go to. And, uh, you know, it reveals what is really important to us. Who's important to us? Um, and I know that some of you here use Facebook um, and use it as a ministry. You use it as a way to reach your friends and to reach your uh, contacts, and that's good. I know some use their time wisely on sites like this and use it as a ministry to others. But would you feel comfortable with the Lord watching what you post on these sites? Remember, He is watching. I think, I think sometimes we forget that. He is watching everything that we do. Would you give Him the keys to every room of your house, every closet, every cupboard, every drawer? Would you give it all to Him and say, Lord, go ahead, look through it all. You're free to do anything, see anything, use anything I have, no problem. Rick spoke last week in, in his message. He mentioned that as Christians, we have three enemies. It is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes I think we have let the world into our homes. I think we sometimes cater to the flesh in our homes. And I think sometimes the devil has had free reign more than the Lord Jesus in our homes. Have we let him in? That is the Lord. Have we let him in? Well, you know, it, it's, I think it would be quite uncomfortable. Um, I think this Pharisee found it that way too, to have the Lord come over for dinner. I think the Pharisee and some of his friends were actually trying to trap Jesus in this event. They called him in and said, hey, let's have the Lord over. Let's have Jesus. They didn't call him the Lord, obviously. Let's have Jesus over and let's trap him. Let's show him how he breaks the law. He's a lawbreaker. Well, the Lord became a very uncomfortable guest to him. Well, he invited him anyway. And there was another guest there too. It was a man with a disease called dropsy. We don't use that term anymore. Uh, edema is really the term that is used uh, today, which is probably the same thing as dropsy. Um, it's a swelling of tissues with fluid. And I think you could ask um, our doctor here uh, about edema. But I th my understanding of it, it's really a symptom not necessarily a disease itself, but it's a symptom of something that is really wrong inside. You've got swelling in the tissue or swelling in the, in the body somewhere, but it's really pointing to something far worse going on uh, in your body. Sometimes it's connected with heart failure or fluid buildup in the lungs, pulmonary 
uh, edema, for example. Or it might be related to kidney or liver disease or something along those lines. Well, here's this man, and he has dropsy or edema. And it's obvious that he does, but it's probably because he's got something else deeper inside that's going on. And uh, he he's there, and the uh, people who are at this uh, dinner are watching to see what Jesus is going to do. So they invite this poor guy who's sick to be kind of a guinea pig to see if Jesus is going to do anything with him. And so the Lord, of course, um, does. Like this man with edema, we ourselves might have a deeper problem. We might have things externally. You know, as the Lord would walk through our house, we might say, oh, I want to hide the checkbooks or I want to you know, hide my Facebook or hide the passport or what, I mean, password or whatever. But it's probably a symptom of something that's deeper wrong inside of us. Something wrong with our heart. The real problem is not what he might find externally in the room, but the root problem is probably what goes on in our heart. And so Jesus addresses the heart issue here uh, in Luke chapter 14. And so Jesus uses this opportunity with this man who has dropsy to really zero in on what the real problem is. It's not the man with dropsy. It's everybody else at the, at the event. It's the man who invited him, and it's all the other guests. They have the heart problem. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees who were also at the dinner, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Oh, let's start, stop for a second. Let's go back to just before he said that. Let's take a look at something here. Chapter 14, in verse 3, and it says, And Jesus answering, well, wait a minute, they didn't ask a question. How can you answer somebody when they don't ask a question? But it says that. It says, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now go on. Verse 5, well, verse 4, first of all, When he answered them, it says they kept silent. So they were still quiet. They still hadn't said anything. Verse 5, then he answered them. You say, what? How can you answer somebody who isn't asking any questions? Well, remember who this is. This is the Lord who knows every thought, who knows every imagination of our hearts. He knows everything. They don't have to ask. Jesus doesn't have to have the sound waves of the question going through the air for him to perceive a question. He already knows what's on our heart. In fact, the Psalm, Psalm 139 says this. It says, um, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before you ever formulate the words and the sound come out from your mouth, you've already thought of these things in your heart or in your brain. And he knows it. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows it all. He is the Lord. He is God. So he doesn't need you to ask the question out loud. There was a a comedian 
who used to imitate George Bush, and he would make some kind of a off-the-cuff comment, and he'd go, whoops, there are outside words and there are inside words. That was an inside word, wasn't it? You know? And the idea was that sometimes we open our mouth and we put our foot in it. But we don't even have to open our mouth and put our foot in it because if we're thinking these things in our heart, He knows it all together. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He asks. Well, I'm sure they were trying to think up all kinds of reasons why it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath because they had all kinds of rules for everything. But the Word of God would not support them in an answer like that. And so their silence was deafening. And so he did the right thing. He healed the man, and he let him go. And it was the Sabbath. (gasps) He healed a man on the Sabbath. And you just feel the shockwaves going through this community of people at this dinner. And so Jesus answered them again, even though they didn't say anything. But what the Scripture shows in this passage is that we as people are constantly having a conversation. Do you know that? You are, Even now, you're having a conversation with yourself. You're talking in your heart. You're talking in your mind, and you're going, eh, I don't know about this guy. You know? <laughs> you're saying things. You're thinking things. And you're making judgments all the time in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. He hears it all together. It appears that they were furious with Jesus for his lack of spirituality. Do you know that you can be mad in your thoughts? You can be angry in your thoughts. He was breaking their laws and he healed a man on the Sabbath. To them, this was a work and work was forbidden on the Sabbath. Huh? I could just see them, you know, smugly sitting there. He's a lawbreaker. And so Jesus answered them again. What a conversation they were having with their, in their hearts. Condemning him for being unspiritual. Condemning him for being a lawbreaker, for violating their rules. And yet not a word was spoken. And Jesus heard it all. What kind of conversations do we have in our hearts? Do we watch what other Christians do and condemn them for their actions? In our hearts, of course, we never say it out loud. We're very uh, careful about what comes out of our lips. But in our hearts, do we condemn others uh, for what they do? Do we condemn them because we feel that we are more spiritual than they are? And if it was me, I would never do that. You'd never find me acting that way. You'd never find me talking that way. You'd never find me fill in the blank. Do you have conversations like that? I condemn myself. Yeah. So Jesus answered them again, saying, which of you, having a donkey, the word could be son there, it's um, either donkey or son. I don't think I'd call my son a donkey, but anyway, the, the word, it could be either. Or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. Wow. One sentence condemns them, justifies what he did. They were silenced by his answers, even though they had not uttered a word. You know, we are often quite condemning of others, aren't we? 
when it comes to sin, we are peculiar people. I mean, we're not supposed to be peculiar in that way, but it's true. What we find hideous in others, we find quite acceptable in ourselves. And that's why Jesus said elsewhere in Luke, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, but when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. Ooh, what a word he used there. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. I remember first time we studied this passage, Bill McDonald talked about it, and he says, here's a case where a man is out uh, in, in the field, and he's, he's throwing wheat or grain up, and a little speck from the grain is in his eye, and he's trying to get it out, and he can't get it out. And here I come along, and I've got a telephone pole sticking out of my eye. Let me help you with that speck. Are you going to be able to see enough to be able to remove the speck with a telephone pole in yours? No, of course not. And that's what Jesus is saying. What we see as being hideous sins in other people, we often have in our own lives to an exaggerated degree, and we don't even see it. So I'm going to tell a story on myself this morning. About two months ago, I was thinking about various counseling issues we were dealing with, and some of the things that I was saying. There are some here and some elsewhere who struggle with besetting sins, sins that they struggle with all the time, difficult to overcome in their lives. And you know, there are certain sins, I'm just going to say this to you very frankly, there are certain sins where I don't think I would ever be tempted to sin in that way. Okay, It's not because I'm stronger, it's just because it's not a temptation to me in that area. But there might be something else in my life that is a serious temptation, and it wouldn't be in your life. But to each of us, there's some area or some areas where we struggle with the sin, and it, it's constant, and, it, and it's, uh, we need victory in those areas. Well, there were some who were struggling with some besetting sin. Maybe uh, for some, it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's violence. Maybe it's anger or some other sin. And it was easy for me to see that these issues are just simply wrong and to counsel people about how to overcome those sins. And so that's what I would do. I would go to the Scripture or show them where they need to change and why and, and uh, off and running. I would say, in a sense... Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye. Let me remove that speck. But I was quick to overlook the fact that there's a telephone pole in my eye. And while others may struggle with alcohol or drugs or some other substance, I was a food addict. That was me. A food addict. It was easy to be soft on myself, you know. I call it being pleasantly plump and especially with the emphasis on pleasant. Or a little, you notice that, a little overweight. Or I'd say, well, you know, I just I need to watch what I eat. I think I've watched what I've eaten for quite some time. And it was quite easy to see what was in the way of my toes. 
And I simply had to admit the fact that I was fat. It's not a pleasant word, is it? I actually went online before I started all this, and I, um, I looked up what a person of my height and age and all that should weigh. And I had already reached the category of being obese, and I was so offended by that website. I was absolutely offended by it. So I went to another website instead. <laughs> and they said the same thing. Well, I was about ready to go and see Dr. Oz or something like that, you know. It's an awful word, but it's true. And I had to be honest with myself and ask, why, Don, why are you fat? And I use that word, okay? I wrote a letter to my sisters and my mother, and I said, I've checked into rehab. And I said, I understand that in the 12-step uh, program, which I don't recommend, by the way, but I'll tell you about that in a minute, um, that the first step in a 12-step program is that you have to admit that you have a problem. Okay? You know, it's true of any sin. You have to admit that you have a problem. It's called sin. And I had to admit I was fat. So I put it in big words. I am fat. There, I said it. And uh, I said, I've checked into rehab. But I began to think about why. Why is this? What, how, why, what got me to this point besides my wife's good cooking? And I'm not blaming her, okay? <laughs> I still have the option of saying no, you know? And uh, I began to realize something about me that uh, I didn't like. And it was this. When I feel anxious, or when I feel, um, what's the word I would use, um, maybe overwhelmed, or frustrated with counseling cases, or whatever it happens to be, I would go home and I would eat, and I wouldn't think about what I was eating, and I would just eat. And it felt good to eat for a very little time. And then I'd feel awful. <laughs> And uh, so the Bible says this. You know what I was doing? I was finding, and I, this is what I realized. I was finding comfort in food. Can you imagine that? Food, comforting. We call it comfort food, and all the comfort food is really bad for you. But that's what I was finding. And then I realized, as the psalmist said, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. And I said, Lord, I'm just wrong. And this is sin in my life. I'm not here to condemn anybody who's overweight. That's not my point. For me, it is a sin. And I realized when I reached the heaviest weight in my entire life, it was a symptom of something that was deeper going on inside me. I was turning to food instead of the Lord. Can you imagine that? But isn't that what an addict does? An addict, drug addict, alcoholic, uh, smoker, uh, somebody who is looking, you know, who is uh, uh, looking for something else other than the Lord to comfort them. And it doesn't have to be food. Your sin might be something completely different. But whatever it is that is distracting you from coming to the Lord with your burdens and your cares, it's a problem. I'll just say that. Okay, Think about it. So I realized that 
is exactly what people who have addictions of any kind do. And I know that they do not satisfy. Remember what the Lord said through Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you say, well, is overeating a sin? Well, like I said, for me it is. I know some people have medical problems and that and have had injuries and things like that, and age with age you change, and all these kind of things. And I had all kinds of excuses besides those. But for me, it was a sin. And it became abundantly clear to me uh, seven weeks ago. And so, as I said, I checked into rehab, and I'm in rehab to this day. And it's not uh, at the Mayo Clinic. It's at my house, actually. I just have started to change. I call it repentance. That's what it is. When you see a sin in your life, there's only one action that you can take, and that is repentance. You seek the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just wrong. Forgive me. And the Lord is so gracious, and He does. Repentance. Well, I talked about a little bit about 12-step program, and I, I had known about 12-step program, and I don't use it, and I don't recommend it to anybody. But I thought, man, this is going to take a lot more than 12 steps to get me out of this mess. You know? How do you repent of the sin of obesity. Oh, I hate that word. Um, so far, it has taken me more than 500,000 steps, literally, to repent. And I'm not finished yet. Each step I take is toward removing the beam that is in my eye so that I can then see more clearly to help you or to help others remove the speck that is in their eyes. It's not a diet. Okay, so don't confuse this with a diet. This is a change of life. That's what it is. Repentance is a change of life. It's not to say, okay, for a temporary moment or two, I'm going to change this sin in my life, but I'm going to go back to it once I reach my goals. <laughs> it's a change of life. That's what repentance is. What is Jesus, uh, and that's what Jesus is after here in this scripture. These were hypocrites condemning him for healing a man on the Sabbath while they saw no inconsistencies in their own lives in helping a son or a, uh, an animal get out of the pit on the Sabbath day. So now we come to scene two of this chapter. Jesus turns, uh, is, really the section here is, He who humbles himself will be exalted. He turns to the other guests at the dinner table and he tells them a parable. You know, at a wedding feast, um, they have tables set up. And you have the head table, and the head table is where the bride and the groom sit. And then the nearest table to the bride and groom, of course, are the family of the bride, the family of the groom, and so on. And then the uh, relatives who aren't too popular sit in the out, outcast areas, you know. Um, that's just the way it is. Well, he told them the story about those, you know, as he's watching these people at this dinner party, and they've got this probably long table uh, where people are seated, and the host is the most important person at this meal, and they're kind of elbowing their way to the best seat so they can sit next to the host. And the Lord's saying, hey, whoa, 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 this is all wrong. That's not what to do. And really, he's saying, look, if you sit in the best seats, there's only one place to go if you shouldn't be there, and that's down. But if you sit in the lowest seat, there's only one, one movement you can make, and that's up. And so he is saying to them, look... Um, When you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place 
so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. But here's the key to this whole section. Verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What was on their heart? When people do that, what's on their heart? It's pride. Pride says, I deserve to be noticed. I deserve the best place. I deserve the best seat. I should be served first. I deserve to be first in line. And on and on. I deserve prominence. Pride is demonstrated not just by what we say, but it's demonstrated by our actions. And when we kind of elbow our way to the top, we're really saying, hey, I'm more important than everybody else's. And the Lord is saying here, no. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself. Be the lowest. Be the bottom of the pile. And, and be humble. Why? Because as James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then we think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Paul writes in a beautiful way in, in Philippians 2 about the Lord of glory who comes down. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's no greater act of humiliation than that. But the point of that passage is really not to talk about just his humiliation, but the application of that to our lives, which is this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the application to our lives. Third scene is Jesus' lesson on hospitality. And so we want to, I didn't mention anything about the kitchen in your house, but we want to look at it today. And uh, the kitchen. We've talked about the Lord coming and visiting your home. The one room we left out, the kitchen. At your house, would the kitchen be locked off? Is the kitchen locked off in your house? You say, no, it's an open room. No, but if the Lord were to come, would it be locked off? He says, no, no, I'd have him come over. Okay, so now the question is this. Do you use your home for hospitality? Do you have an open door policy in your home where any of the saints can come? You say, well, wait a minute, that's different. No, it's not. It's not different. You say, well, I enjoy just being together with my family and it's comfortable and I don't like being uncomfortable. So I don't like other people coming to my house because it's uncomfortable. Okay, That's the door, that's the kitchen being locked off. And really when you're locking off the kitchen to the saints, you're locking off the kitchen to the Lord because the saints are the Lord's. Some people are very private and they don't open up their hearts or their homes to anyone. The Lord speaks elsewhere about those who take in strangers and the hungry and feed them. And he says, it's as though they were feeding him. He said, they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you unclothed? When did we see that? And he says, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it to me. And so the Lord actually gives you credit for serving him this way when you do it for the saints or for others. And particularly, I'd say, for others. So let me just say this to you. Hospitality is an honorable service, and I recommend it to you highly. The New Testament speaks of caring for widows 
who during their life lodged strangers. In other words, one of the qualifications for a widow being helped out by the church is that she in her lifetime was hospitable to others. She cared for others. In Hebrews we read, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. The Pharisee who invited Jesus to his home showed hospitality by inviting Jesus to his home. But now Jesus turns his attention to his host, and here's what he says, verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I like the fact that we have a sign-up sheet that's blank out there right now for the hospitality dinner that's coming up. And you can use it. You can say, I'm going to open my house up. And I don't care who comes. Anybody. Open. Open kitchen. Come on in. Can I ask you, is your kitchen open to all? It should be. I just returned from Seattle uh, late last night with uh, Krista. And uh, we were there. My mother-in-law told us a story about something that happened in their church just uh, maybe a couple of months ago. There was a lady who had moved into the area. She was actually in a uh, hospital care setting. She had had surgery, and she had to move into that area where there was a home for people recovering from the surgery that she had had. And so she went to the nearest church, to this uh, facility, on each Sunday. And for five weeks, she came to this church. And the church probably holds, I don't know how many people they actually have come, but it holds probably 400 people. And every week she would come, Sunday number one, Sunday number two, and so on, up to five Sundays. On the fifth Sunday, she just couldn't hold her peace any longer. And she stood up in the church, and she said, you know, people, I've been coming here for the last five weeks, and there is not a single person in this church who has invited me out to dinner, not a single person in this church who has taken me out for lunch. There's not a single person here who has shown care for me. Oh, you can just imagine. Ladies, sit down. <laughs> they didn't say that. But, you know, what can you say? Five weeks and not a single invite. And, of course, many came to her aid after that meeting. But it was a real rebuke to the entire church. When was the last time you opened your home and invited someone in? Someone you don't know. We have visitors here almost every week, and you could do that. If you really want to excel in hospitality, then here's the recipe to cook up in your kitchen. Don't invite those who are going to reciprocate. That means don't invite your friends, your relatives, and so on. You know, you give them an invitation, and you're expecting in the mail the you know, RSVP card for an invite to their house. You know, tit for tat kind of a thing. You, you know, they invite you, you invite them kind of a deal. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. Um, instead, focus on those who cannot repay you. Focus on those who are maimed, lame, blind, etc. Um, those who maybe can't reciprocate socially to you. And the Lord says, don't worry about the cost of it. Don't worry about the blessing that comes from it. I 
will repay. Put it on my tab. That's what he's saying here. Put it on my tab, and I will make sure that you are repaid. He doesn't talk about repaid in this life. He talks about being repaid in the resurrection of the just. That is when the believers are taken home to heaven. There are rewards that the Lord will give out. And he'll say, you know what? I remember every time you were hospitable to somebody, and I'm going to give you a reward for that. The Lord is very generous, and he's going to give rewards. But I'm going to tell you something just from fact, okay, just from experience. He doesn't talk about reward now. He only talks about reward that's to come. But I'll tell you something. If you open your home to people, (laughs) there is great reward in that. You won't believe the reward that you'll get in every way in your uh, life from that time, that opportunity. Whether it's being able to talk to somebody about the Lord and lead them to Christ, or it's to talk to people who are believers who are struggling and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, those are rich rewards in this life. And then there's a reward to come. That's the way the Lord is. If Jesus were to come to your house today, would you allow him as your Lord, to search every room, every secret closet, and explore ultimately the depths of your heart? And will this be the day that you turn from all of these things that we've looked at this morning, which are hypocrisy, pride, and every form of partiality? Jesus said to a ruler one day, there are two great commandments. The two of these, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In a nutshell, that's what this passage is about. Loving God with all your heart, every area of your heart, nothing held back, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what hospitality is, reaching out and loving people for his sake. Let's pray. Lord, we sang this morning, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And Lord, I know in my own life and others that we can become lazy and look back and go back the other way. And Lord, we want to repent of our sins and ask you, Lord, that you might uh, turn our hearts wholly to you. Lord, let there be no room in our hearts or our homes that you don't have free access and free reign. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see others as you see them and love them for Christ's sake. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.